If you want to open your Bibles, we're going to be in Genesis 4 again this week. Just by way of review, last week we started, uh, Lord willing, a series on worship. And the main thing we talked about was the privilege of worship. The privilege of worship. And for me, the thing that struck me the most in reading this story of Cain and Abel is just the great privilege it is to be able to worship God and He will receive you. And it was just highlighted by the fact that Cain was rejected. And we talked about how horrible it would be if you send a thank you note to someone and they sent a note back, I reject your thank you, you don't mean it, I threw it in the trash. How much more would it be horrible to praise God and Him speak, I reject I reject your worship. What a privilege for God to speak and say, your worship is pleasing to me, which is what he did here with Cain in some way, or with Abel in some way. So we, th- we talked about the privilege of worship, and then today we're going to keep talking about this passage. What else do we learn about worship? So let's read it t- again together. Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well... Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel his brother when they were in the field. Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, Why? Ha- what have you done? The voice of your brother. Brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Well, this is a sad, sad story here. I am going to give a short little tangent here because I don't know how often I'll ever speak on Cain and Abel again since I've already done it twice. So this is not directly about worship, but it's worth noting and could be helpful, I think, to you, especially to the parents. So just put this in the box over here and try and stick with me, and then I'll get back to the main point here, which is worship. But I want you to think about 
the beginning of this verse in verse 1. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, these two words here, right after the fall, send your antennas up. Like, oh, what is he talking about? He's referencing something he's already talked about before with these specific words, and it's actually in Genesis 3.16. If you want to turn back a page. Genesis 3.16 is the curse that God gave to the woman. He said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, or it's the same word there used that's uh, for conceived. I will surely multiply your pain in conceiving. In pain you shall bear or bring forth children. So both the words here are used that were the words used, um, the root words, there in 3.16. So, he's talking in Genesis 3.16, what's the result of the fall? Great sorrow in children, in bearing children. When I, when I think about it, or when I've heard it, it's always in general talked about actually having children in terms of the day the baby's born, how painful that is. But the interesting thing is the word is a little bit broader than that in Genesis 5. The same word bore is used uh, by fathered. And it's actually talking about the father there. Adam fathered Seth. When Seth lived 105 years, he bore Enosh. So this word bear is more than just actually literally have a baby. And so is it talking about that? I think it probably is. I think it's probably a dual meaning. But the fact that both words are used right here at the beginning, in my mind, is kind of like a link back to what already happened. Remember what I said? Remember how I said great sorrow is going to come into the world now? And then think about what this story is about. This story is about great sorrow because of sin coming into the world through children. Isn't it? It's about a brother that murders another brother. Think about it. The first death is your son killing your other son. How much sorrow. And so, just as this is an aside, but I hope it's helpful to you, it helps me to think whenever I see all these things in the world, uh, all the difficulty for parents and all the difficulty just in general, you know due to sin, all the sorrow. What is the cause? Well, God told Eve it was going to happen. There's going to be great sorrow. And I want you to think about it for you as parents. I bet no one in here this week shed tears of sorrow, great sorrow, over the day their daughter or son was born. Not this week. Not that I know of. No one had a baby here this week. But I guarantee you, and I know for certain, that many of you shed tears over your children's sin this week. Why? Because in some ways, I think that's what the curse was talking about. Not just the physical suffering. 
it's talking about sin entering the world and sorrow through sin. The reason I bring it up is it's helpful to me. I mean, it's helpful to me when I see these things, when I feel sorrow over my child's sin. It brings me right back to God. God, you said this would happen. You knew this is what it was going to be like to live in a sinful world. And you, and you promised to deliver. And so, just parents, I just, I feel for you. And I know that it's been a hard week for some of you more than others. And you're not the only one. It's a part of the fall, part of the fall to see our children hating one another and mean, hateful, and not interested in God. It causes great sorrow. Well, let's move on from that total aside there, but I hope it's helpful to you. Let's get back to the main thing, which is worship here. Worship. So the big question that wasn't answered last week, we talked about the privilege of worship, but we didn't talk about why. The big question in people's mind, why was Cain rejected and Abel accepted? So to answer that, we're going to ask a couple other questions to start. So the first question we need to ask is, what was rejected? What was rejected here? And let's look at the text. Look with me at verse 4 and 5. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So, what was rejected? There was actually two things. We almost always just focus on the sacrifice specifically. But look at what it says here. It says it twice. It says, Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering." But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So I'll give you an example. I'm going to pick on Ryan because I know he can handle it. Um, if I said, I don't like Ryan and your, I don't like you and your shirt. I'm, I don't like two things. The two things are Ryan and his shirt. I actually don't dislike a shirt, but it's just an example. It's a helpful example because that's exactly what's happening here. God is not just saying, I don't like your sacrifice. He says he doesn't have regard for Cain and his offering, and he does have regard for Abel and his offering. And to make it really clear, God, when he specifically talks to Cain later on in the passage, what, what does he say? If you do well, will your sacrifice be accepted? No, he says, if you do well, will you will be accepted. The man. God is rejecting two things. He's rejecting the sacrifice and the one who's giving the sacrifice. He's rejecting the offerer and the offering. The worship and the worshiper. 
There's two pieces here. It's really important because we've got to see what worship is, right? And worship is not just the thing that you do or the thing that you offer. It's much more than that. The main point here today, really, is the pieces of worship. The offerer and the offering. The worship and the worshiper. So now that we've got that in the background, let's ask this. What was wrong with Cain's sacrifice? The two most common explanations are ones you probably already can give me. Maybe I'll ask you. What, what have you heard in the past was wrong with Cain's sacrifice? Okay, he, he, he brought the vegetables. He didn't bring a blood sacrifice. Is that what you... Yes, okay. I've heard that too. And so that's, uh, that's one of the most common. You know, Leviticus talks about um, grain offerings. So it's possible. It is possible to bring uh, an offering that's not a blood sacrifice. On the other hand, is it possible that God said, apart from the shedding of blood, there's no sacrifice for sins? Yes, right? That's true. If God Is it possible that God commanded Cain, you need to bring a blood sacrifice, and he didn't? Yeah, it's possible. It's possible, but the text doesn't say that. The other option is that... I, that is common is the idea of the firstborn. It talks about Abel bringing the firstborn of his flock, but there's no corresponding word for Cain. So the idea is Abel brought the best that he had to offer and Cain didn't. Abel brought the best and Cain brought the leftovers. Is would that be a reason for God to reject? Absolutely. God, does, God says that specifically later on in the Old Testament. Why are you bringing me these blind and these lame sacrifices? And he rejects them. So that's the other most common interpretation. Neither of them are actually spelled out. So we don't actually know. And you've probably heard this before. The plain thing is the main thing. Have you heard that? The plain thing is the main thing. If it's not super clear, it's not the main thing. Like what I, I'll give you a perfect example. What I brought up about Eve and the curse, that's not the plain thing. That's not the whole meaning of this passage. That's a possibility. It's an aside. It's not the main point of the message because it's not the main point of the text. It's just an aside. Is it possible uh, that either the blood or that the vegetables is what God was looking at or that it was not the best? Absolutely. But it's not the main point of the text. Otherwise, God would have told us. What do we know? What was wrong? What was wrong was sin. That's what we do know. Sin was the problem. And we know it from verse 7. If you do well, this is what God says to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, and you must rule over it. So there was something that Cain did that was wrong, that God's calling sin. We know it from verse 7. We also know it from Hebrews 11.4. It says, 
By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice. We know that anything not done in faith is sin, right? So if Abel's sacrifice was offered in faith, and that's why it was accepted and why Cain's wasn't, then it was sin because Cain wasn't offering it in faith. We know that there was sin involved. And so what we learn here from this passage is that sin mars our worship. Sin separates us from God. Sin is a reason for God to reject our worship. And we could go a step further. We know one more thing. It doesn't specifically say this in the passage. But we know it from the Bible that all sin is a heart problem. Remember, God sees not as a man sees. God looks on the heart. We don't know whether Cain's sin was outward, something he did, or whether it was something inward that only God saw. Is it possible that his outward sacrifice was perfectly legitimate? Wasn't breaking anything that God had told him to do? It's absolutely possible. It's possible that God was looking on his heart. That God saw hatred in his heart for his brother. Or God saw he was trusting in himself and not in God. We don't know. But we know that two things. That he had a sin problem. And that because sin is always a heart problem, that he had a heart problem. It may have shown itself outwardly or it may not have. We don't know. You know, Luke 6.45 says, well, let's just look at that. Luke 6.45. How do we know that all sin is a heart problem? Luke 6.45, here Jesus tells us, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. If If sin's coming out, it's because we've got sin in our heart. That's the only option. It's not true that, well, it's my, it's my surroundings, it's my friends, it's my location, it's the situation, it's the circumstances. That's not true. Sin always comes from the heart. That's where it always starts. So we see here Cain and Abel. Why was it rejected? Why was Cain's sacrifice rejected? Sin. Sin that started in the heart. And what do we learn from that? Well, let's think about these two points we've made so far together. That worship is not just God accepting the offering. It's God looking at both the offerer and the offering. The worship and the worshiper. And that the problem, what separates us from God in terms of our worship being unacceptable is sin. So let's put those together. One, we know that worship is not just external it's not just the offering god is not a vending machine and if you put in the right number of coins then out's going to pop whatever it is regardless of who you are that's not how it works we're not right with god because we go to him and we do all the right things i went to church 
and I put, put in my time, or I got up and I read my Bible, or I prayed for X number of minutes, or I worshiped God in just the way he said. We're not right with God that way. It's not about doing all the right things. God's not just looking at the outward. God's looking at the inward. Yeah, it makes me think of a student I talked to on campus. I asked, how are you right with God? And they said, I go to church every Sunday. And I said, when you go to church, do you sit in church and look at your watch because you think it's super boring and you're ready to leave and you don't want to be there? And they're like, yeah. And I said, so you think you go to church and you hate being there. You don't like it. It's boring. You're ready to get out and go do all the other things you want to do. And God looks down and he thinks, wow, that person's right with me because they hate going to church, but they go anyways. They don't want to be with me. They don't want to worship me. The whole time they're looking at their watch wanting to leave. And then they said, well, maybe not. I mean, we have this idea. We can get this mentality. It's the mentality of the, of the world that it's just the outward. You put in the quarter and out pops your bag of chips. You go to the church. doesn't matter what's on the inside. doesn't matter what you did last night. God's going to accept you. He's so thankful you're here. That's not true. That is not true. That's not the way God is. I'll tell you another story from my life. I used to work my second job I had. I was 17. I worked at the nicest restaurant in the town we lived in. It was the only restaurant with stars. <laughs> and I wore, I was a bus boy. I wore a tie and had to, you know, wear like a button-up shirt and fill glasses. And the cheapest thing on the menu was a $20 bowl of pasta. And that's it, just pasta. You know, no salad, no nothing. And so it was a fancy restaurant, kind I'd never been to in my whole life. And every Friday night, this is a true story, a guy would come in and sit down with this lady and... I found out that it was his girlfriend, an older guy. And then she would leave after about 45 minutes, and his wife would come and sit down. How do you think the wife felt? Do you think she felt, wow, my husband bought me this fancy dinner. It means so much. Wow, there's flowers on the table. My husband, I'm so thankful he gave me these. If she knew, and I think she did, that her husband loved somebody else, did she love the outward, the outward gifts? She hated the flowers. She hated the dinner. Because she knew in his heart it wasn't real. And that's how God is. God hates it when people are hypocrites. God hates insincere worship. And that's why he rejects. That's why he rejects it. God's not desperate for worship. God's not desperate for any kind of worship from any kind of person. God wants the real thing. Doesn't matter how nice the dinner is. Doesn't matter how pretty the flower is. The question is, is it real on the inside? 
Is it real in your heart? Remember this story from the Reformation when uh, they made up that song when a coin into the coffer rings a soul from purgatory springs. Remember that? If you give just the right amount of money, you're going to go to heaven. If you give just the right amount of money, you can plan all these sins, go pay for them, go do them, and they're not on your account. That's not true. That's not how it works. God's not a vending machine. You can't buy Him. You can't bribe Him. God sees the intention of the heart. This is the last, a lot of bunch, bunch of stories. The last story I'll tell you, this one's kind of funny. Um, from my classroom, a student said, Hey, Mr. Turner, I want to bring a big box of books just to donate to the classroom. I thought, Oh, that's nice. That's really nice. And they said, can I bring him in? I said, well, I need to just talk to the staff. You know, I, I just, I don't know. This never happened before. I just need to talk to them. So they keep br- talking about bringing all these books. And then later on, they say this to me. Now, when I bring the books, that means I get to come to the classroom anytime I want, right? And get books off the shelf since I gave them. And I realized this is not about giving the classroom books. This is a bribe. This is them wanting to have control over when they got to come into classroom or not. Because when I'm not there, they don't get to just come in and take books off the shelf. They have to wait. And so I rejected the books, obviously. I said, no, you can't give me a box of books. And God's just like that. You know, God can see. It's, it's not coming to God. I'm going to give him just this and then... I'm going to wait and see if if he returns the favor. If he gives me something in return. God knows exactly what our heart is. We want sincere worship from the heart. We want we want to be pure offers bringing a pure offering, don't we? We do. Now, I think this is actually the main point. Here we, we're coming to the you know, conclusion of this passage. What does it teach us about worship? And I think this is actually the main point. It's definitely the plain thing in, in the Bible about this story. Where does that leave us? If God will only accept an offering... A pure one. It's got to be a spotless lamb. And he's only going to accept it from a pure offerer. Where does that leave you and me? That leaves us out in the cold. What do you have to give to God? What do I have to give to God? What about my sin? Am I a pure offerer? Can I go right up to God and say, Here, God, take my worship, take my offering. I can't. I can't. Can you? I can't. Who can? 
What does that mean we need? It means we need a pure offer and a pure offering. We need a substitute. We need a priest that can go into the veil and offer the pure sacrifice. The main point I really believe of this is that we need faith in the greater Abel, the greater than Abel, Jesus Christ. He is the pure offerer, offering the pure offering. We need both pieces and we don't have either one. You remember what Hebrews says? The sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus Christ. See, Abel was, the, Abel was just a picture. Abel wasn't trusting in his own righteousness. That's what it says in Hebrews. He was trusting in God. He had faith in God. He was trusting something else. Not himself. He knew he didn't have the answers. He knew he wasn't able. Ha! <laughs> Pun. Sorry. <laughs> that was an accident. You and I need Jesus, the greater Abel. Think about this. What did Abel's blood say? It said, you're guilty. That's what it was crying out to God. It's crying out for judgment. What's Jesus' blood crying out? For mercy. He died on our behalf. Jesus is the acceptable offering. He's the lamb, the pure spotless lamb that had to be slain. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. He's the first fruits, right? The firstborn, the best of the flock, Jesus Christ. We need Him better than anything I could ever bring to God. Jesus Christ, death on the cross. But you know what? I can't take it to God. I can't take the blood of Jesus to God because I'm not a pure offerer. Here's this perfect offering. Who's going to take it to God for me? Who's going to intercede? Who's going to enter into the veil? Who's going to go to God and, and plead on my behalf? Jesus. Jesus is the acceptable offerer, the sinless priest that goes in and offers the perfect sacrifice. Our worship, the fact that we can worship, is totally dependent on Jesus. His death. His death as an offering, his life as the one who intercedes, the one who went to God on our behalf and pled our case. But it doesn't stop there, does it? It's not just that he's our offerer and our offering and then we're done. He's bringing us along. Jesus doesn't just do it for us. He changes us. In Leviticus, the same blood they sprinkled on the altar for forgiveness, they sprinkled on the people for purification. Jesus isn't just covering our sins. Jesus is making us new. The blood goes on the altar and it goes on the priest. And it comes back to this idea of the offering and the offerer. God just doesn't want this acceptable offering. He's looking for more. Think about it this way. If God just wanted an offering, the question really is, 
How do we do it? If God wants this thing done, then the question we have to ask is, how do we do the thing? But God doesn't just want this thing called worship. He wants the worship and he wants the worshiper. So the question becomes something different. If God wants acceptable offerers, not just the offering, the question isn't how do we do it, it's who should we be? We want to be worshipers as who we are needs to change. Our aim as worshipers is not, quote, do something, but become someone. Become acceptable worshipers. And Jesus doesn't just forgive our sins and go to God for us. He brings us along. He comes to us and He cleanses us. He sanctifies us. God is looking for worshipers. That's what He said. Remember in John chapter 4, Jesus said, that God is seeking those who worship Him in spirit and truth. He's seeking true worshipers. And Jesus is making that. It's like you can't it's it's like a test at 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 school that you can't pass. And someone not only comes this would be cheating, but if they could take the test for you, well then that's solved. The test is over. But then they also bring you alongside and teach you the material. Does that make sense? They don't just take the test for you. They teach you the material. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He, he not only covers our sin with His blood and brings us to God, makes us acceptable, He's teaching us to become like Him. To become the true worshiper. So we can offer worship that's pleasing to God. He doesn't just say, your sins are forgiven. He says, follow me. Come after me. Come be like me. All that's possible, how? Through faith, right? We need to trust Jesus to be the Lamb of God that takes away our sin. We don't have anything that can cover our sin. We need to trust Jesus to apply that blood to us and take it before God. And in the same way, we need to trust Jesus will change us and show us how we can be like Him, how we can worship Him acceptably. It's all by faith. Your justification is by faith and your sanctification. In general, there's this quote from Bowen, again, that I can't quote word for word, but he basically says, when we cry to God, save me from my sin, we know I've got to trust Him and I, and I believe He'll do it. But when we cry to God, God change me and make me like you, it's exactly the same. God is just as willing and ready to make you different, to change you, to make you a a pure, acceptable worshiper, to cleanse you from your sin as He is to save you from your sin. Both are equally true. So in conclusion, aren't we thankful that this isn't, it isn't about us. It's not about us doing just the right thing. It's about Jesus. He's not only willing to save us, He's willing to change us. And we want to be acceptable worshipers, don't we? So let's pray. Jesus, we are so thankful 
that you came and lived a perfect life for us. Thank you that we don't have to perform, that we can trust. Thank you that you want to change us and you're willing to do it. Lord, we want to be more pleasing to you. We want to offer acceptable worship. Would you purify us by your blood? Not only forgive us, would you change our lives? We want to be forgiven and freed from our sin. Lord, would you do just like you did with Cain with us? If there's anything in our life that's getting in between any sin, would you come down and just put your finger on it? We love you. We're thankful for you. You're a good God. You're worthy of our worship. We never would have thought that you would come and die. We never could have imagined it. We're thankful that you did. We ask all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.